0: Today's reading is taken from John chapter 20, verses 19 to 23. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Thank you so much for this invitation. As always, it's a joy to be back in Holy Trinity. Uh, and thank you to the band as well, great singing. Um, and a new lectern, you have a new lectern, which is fantastic. I gather your vicar destroyed the other one <laughs> in an act of extreme emotional, hyper something or other. But there we are. This uh, is terrific, I'm just gonna pull this, let's pull this down a little. I'm sometimes asked, what's the main difference, Jeremy, between you and your wife, apart from the hairstyle? And I think it comes down to this. If we see a beautiful green lawn in a Cambridge college and walking across it will get us somewhere quicker. My wife won't walk on it until she sees a sign saying, you may walk on the grass. Me, I just walk in the grass until I see a sign saying, don't walk on the grass. The trouble is, of course, that there usually is a sign saying, don't walk on the grass. In fact, it must be one of the commerce commands you'll ever meet in Cambridge just when you're greeted with a patch of freshly manicured grass, flat as a putting green, of the sort you only ever get in Cambridge and never in your back garden. You just long to sink your feet into it, the way you would sink your feet into a new carpet. And there, stuck in the corner, there's a miserable little black sign, do not walk on the grass. Sometimes, please, but rarely. I once uh, had a meeting in King's College here And at King's, only the fellows are allowed to walk on the lawn in front of the chapel. But on this occasion, I was led across the sacred turf by the man I was meeting. And it was strangely thrilling. (laughs) A heady mix of guilt and extreme pleasure, like a teenager being offered the first cigarette round the back of the bike sheds, when some wonderful forbidden territory was suddenly opened up. But there was indeed a sign there saying, Do not walk on the grass, the commonest command. You'll meet in Cambridge. The commonest command in the Bible is another do not. And you're always bumping into it. And what is it in the Bible? What does God tell people to do more often than anything else? I guess if you went out in the streets here in Cambridge and asked people that question, they might say, well, it's probably something like, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't murder and so on. And maybe even you and I would think the same way. God forbidding a whole lot of things which we really rather like doing, like walking on the grass. Someone once said, the trouble with God is that he seems to be against everything I enjoy. All of which makes God sound like a sort of celestial bully, pounding us with do-nots, forbidding whatever gives us pleasure. But turn the page to the Bible and count up the commands what do we find? The commonest command has nothing to do with sex, or stealing, or murdering your boss, or envying your neighbor's Mercedes, or even walking on the grass. And it's a command which suggests a very different kind of God from the God who loves bullying us. And it's simply this, do not fear, be not afraid fear not. It comes about 360 times in the Bible. That's about one for each day of the year. The trouble is, even though it's the commonest command, it's by far the hardest to keep. Far harder than all the Ten Commandments put together, believe me. And that's because most of us live with fear a lot of the time. It's hard to think of life without fear, We cling to our fears and fear clings to us. I'm not talking here, of course, about healthy fears like the fear of putting your hand on a hot plate or the fear of crossing a busy road. We'd be dead without that kind of fear. We need that kind of fear in order to survive. And I'm not talking just about general nervousness before some ordeal. No, I'm thinking of unhealthy fears, fears that seem to come like clouds out of nowhere and hang around. The chronic fears that suck the joy out of life, fears we'd love to get rid of, but we just can't. Think of the old man who was worried about money for years and suddenly inherits a fortune. Then he finds he just can't give any away because he's always been haunted by the fear that he won't have enough. Or the mother, who will never let her baby sleep in another room, in case he stops breathing. Or the young student, who never goes to parties, because a friend was molested at a fresher's party. The fears which cling, and we cling to them. This is when you become, as our song had it earlier, a slave to fear. And I've heard it said that underneath of these fears lie three very deep fears that seems to drive most of the others. Three deep down primal fears that seem to haunt the human race. Fear of isolation, fear of failure, and fear of death. Of course there are others, but these three at least. Fear of isolation, the fear of being alone, unwanted unloved, treated as a waste of space, to use that awful phrase, discarded, forgotten. I've got a friend who's now climbing his way up the academic ladder, and all his life, his biggest fear seemed to have been the fear of being forgotten, overlooked, on nobody's radar. And as far as I can see, he deals with it mainly by frantically posting on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram every day, sometimes many times a day. And most of the posts actually say a little more than, here I am, don't forget me. It's the same with the kind of fear that haunts a lot of elderly people as senility creeps up upon them, being forgotten, shoved away somewhere out of sight, the way old people often are. When they're not considered useful anymore. Isolation. Then there's the fear of failure, of course, not succeeding, screwing up, fear of not living up to your boss's expectations, fear of nosediving in public, like Prince Andrew. Shamed. Fear of failure is rife in a place like Cambridge, of course, among students. The fear of not succeeding. Not getting at least a 2 1, not finishing my PhD. I often uh, have coffee in Cafe Nero's and we're coming up to interview time when potential students from Cambridge come for interview. They often come with their parents. I'm very interested. The, the parents often look much, much more nervous than the students. It's the fear of not succeeding. And among dons and fellows, too, the fear of a bad review not getting tenure. The fear of someone finding out you don't know as much as people think you do. Imposter syndrome, they call it. The fear of being exposed as a phony, a fraud. I'm told it's the commonest fear amongst academics. Isolation, failure, and yes, of course, the fear of death. Not just the fear of dying, which is bad enough, but the fear that beyond our last breath, there's nothing but nothingness. That along with animals and plants and everything else, we're running down into oblivion. Maybe Richard Dawkins is right. Maybe we're living in a universe of, as he puts it, blind, pitiless indifference. Maybe everything I've believed and fought for and loved and cherished, in the end, maybe it's not going to mean anything at all. It's going to be worth precisely zilch. My life is just a tiny flicker in a vast cosmic history that leads into a blank, infinite void. Most of us at some stage have known the shudder that comes with that kind of fear, the fears which cling. Well, by now I expect I've churned up most of your deepest neuroses and you're probably wondering why you're not already in therapy. But it's only to remind us all that we're all plagued by these primal fears deep down, and perhaps more of them. Fears that cling to us and we to them. It's impossible to imagine life without them. Do not fear, says God over and over again in the Bible. But over and over again, we do. The disciples huddle in hiding on the first day of the week. They cringe behind locked doors, we're told, for fear of the Jews. The Jews here are the Jewish leaders, the Jewish leaders who handed Jesus over to the Romans and to execution. The disciples know the same thing could happen to them. But the disciples fear much more than this. The fears are much wider. Just think of those three primal fears again, isolation. Who will want to know them now, now that the whole thing's turned out to be a fraud? Who will want to know these disciples of a would-be Messiah? Who will take them seriously now? They're on on their own now. They're nobodies. Failure. They followed a failed Messiah, which means that they are failures, losers. And that's how they'll be treated. They'll look ridiculous if they venture out now. And besides, they'll probably mess up again and make an even bigger fool of themselves. Failure and death. Of course, if Jesus was dragged away to be brutally executed, who's to stop the same thing happening to them? So they stay behind bolted doors. They cling to each other. They cling to their fears, and fear clings to them. Until they hear the words, peace be with you. For the Jews, the word peace is a wide, very rich word, rich with resonance. But at its heart, it means, do not fear. Don't be afraid. It's the old command again but it's different now, very different, because now it comes with a thousand times more power than it ever could have come before. Why? Who is this who gives the command? Who is this who's standing in their midst, who's looking at them in the eye? The one who has faced the worst, we fear. The one who was isolated by his friends, The one who went to his death mocked as a failure and becomes the victim of everybody else's failure. The one who plunged into the valley of the shadow of death, that valley we dread most. The one who is God in person coming to deal with the very worst so that we could have the very best. The God who made the sun and the stars, the God who fashioned you and me out of dust. This God plummeting down into the worst that we fear, snapping the power of all that we fear, raising his son on the third day to seal that victory. Here in this, Jesus, everything that threatens to defeat you has been defeated. Everything that threatens to crush us has been crushed. So when this Jesus says, do not fear, peace be with you, it means ultimately, ultimately, there's nothing to be afraid of. Do not fear. You see, now we have a reason, a real reason not to fear. And just look at what that meant for the disciples. Think of it like this, fear pulled them in. They're crouching and cowering behind locked doors, clinging to their fears. That's what fear does, it pulls you in. But the risen Jesus pulls them out of their fears and sends them out. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. He breathes his spirit on them and out they go into a hostile world facing fire and whip and jail. Out they go. Of course, it doesn't mean they'll never be afraid again, but fear no longer clings and cleaves to them. They're no longer slaves to fear. Take those three elemental fears I spoke about. Isolation. Yes, of course we fear isolation, being ignored, left on the shelf, passed by, passed over. And we all know the temptation then is to shrink, not to risk anything, not to risk dating in case we get dumped, not to risk staying for coffee after the service in case no one speaks to me, not to risk telling a friend about Jesus in case he never speaks to you again. Sure, but faced with Jesus, God raised from the dead who says, peace be with you. What have we been told? That we don't have to live dominated by the fear of isolation. That your deepest, deepest need to be loved will be met in him. God's love can now get through to you. He's the one who comes from the loving heart of God, this Jesus. The one who walks with you at every turn and never walks out on you. The one who can and will pull you out of yourself and all your fears and give you friends at a place like this who will last for eternity. Fear pulls you into yourself. Jesus pulls you out of your fears and sends you out. Fear that, sorry, Jesus that is, makes you eccentric. I know, crazy. Yes, crazy but also eccentric, going out from the center. That's what it means to be a Christian, being incurably eccentric. Isolation, failure. Of course we all fear failure, who doesn't? You try preaching a sermon at Holy Trinity. (laughs) Especially with a new lectern. Actually for many, many, many years, I was terrified of speaking in public. For 15 years, I never spoke in groups of more than three, and you're thinking to yourself, if only he'd stayed that way, no, 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 (laughs) okay. And we all know, of course, with the threat of failure comes the temptation to shrink, very much like I did. Chance nothing, venture nothing, don't say anything, and they'll all think you're terribly wise. (laughs) But in the presence of this Jesus, God raised from the dead, who says, peace be with you, you're being offered a deep well of forgiveness when you do mess up. Yes of course you fear the job interview this week, the tough words you need to say to a family member, the talk you've got to give next week, a presentation perhaps, heaven forbid, a sermon. Yes, we may mess up and get it all wrong and even look ridiculous, but you know there are times we just need to say, so what? So what if I look stupid? All that counts in the end is what Jesus cares about. And did I do what he cares about or try to do what he cares about? And Jesus can handle any gaffes I make along the way. He's had a lot of practice for 2,000 years. He's very used to getting screwed up Christians back on their feet. And besides, he's already dealt with your failures on the cross. Remember, he's got nail marks in his hands. I can handle the gaffes. So why hold back? Fear pulls you in. The risen Jesus pulls you out of your fears and sends you out. And yes, the third, death. Of course we fear it. We do fear that everything might be heading towards nothing. We do fear that everything we value, all those we love, all beauty, And goodness and truth will be lost forever. And yes, seen with the eyes of the physicist alone, things don't end well. Things are running down. Everything does seem to be heading for a bleak future, including you and me. The entire cosmos is unraveling, dissipating, disintegrating, it would seem, into oblivion. And faced with all that, we're bound to shrink into apathy. Because if we really believe that, there's not a lot of point in doing very much, is there? What's the point in carrying on? But faced with this Jesus, this one God raised from the dead, what then? Well then, this running down of everything into death can't be the last word. Jesus is the last word. And life with him forever. And let's be clear here, we're not just talking about survival here. Don't let anyone fool you into thinking Christians believe in survival after death, the survival of the soul, like the black box that survives the plane crash. Who wants to be a black box? No, Christians believe in resurrection, something far more exciting. That means getting a new body. It means being redesigned and remade. The whole plane gets rebuilt. That's what the resurrection of the body means. A new body, no less. Your body, your funny, quirky, badly shaped, spot-ridden, badly tattooed apology for a body With all its aches and pains and sicknesses, it will be recomposed, remade from top to bottom, from fingernails to toenails. As a friend said to me once, God cares so much about your body, he's promised to bring it out in a new edition. And that's what's been previewed in the raising of Jesus from the dead, a new body. That's why the disciples didn't recognize him at first, because he was the same, yeah, but very different of this world and the next. And all this, this hope, is part of what the book of Revelation calls the new heaven and the new earth at the end of time. Make no mistake, the hope is for a new world, this world with a hundred new dimensions, this world with a thousand new colors, a giant cosmic makeover. I was speaking to a friend the other day, Simon Barrington Ward, who was once watch, watching a sunset with C.S. Lewis, the way one does. And... <laughs> And he looked at it and he said, uh, my friend said, look, look at all that beauty. If only I could just hold it there. It's so transient, so fleeting, lost forever. C.S. Lewis, uh -uh. it's a promise, a tiny glimpse of what is to come. A tiny foretaste of the new heaven and the new earth. Yes, of course we fear losing the things we love, but if this Jesus really is raised from the dead as a promise of what is to come, that means nothing of value will be lost. The staggering beauty of the sunset, yes, the partner who died before their time, the love we put into our kids who one day just threw it all in our faces and left. Do not fear, says Jesus. If it's done in my name, if it matters to God, it won't be lost. Something will be made of even that on the last day. It will be turned into something wonderful beyond words. Fear pulls you in, but Jesus pulls you out of your fears and sends you back out to carry on. I know, it sounds too good to be true. And it's mighty hard to let these fears go. But faced with this Jesus, the one God raised from the dead, and empowered by his spirit, that's what will happen. Here's an idea in closing. Next time you see that sign, don't walk in the grass. I dare you. Put a sticker over it and write in big letters do not fear